You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. If your team is ready to improve patient outcomes, check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com for information about webinars and consulting services. In a recent conference I attended, I heard the comment, we have a lot of neuro patients, so the ABCDF bundle doesn't really apply to our unit. It had me dumbfounded. I am excited to discuss this further with an incredible neurointensivist, Dr. Niha Dengayich, who is a bold advocate for the ABCDF bundle, particularly with neuro patients within her specialty. Dr. Dengayich, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Do you mind introducing yourself? Thank you so much, Kelly, for having me. My name is Neha Dangayich. I am an assistant professor of neurology and neurosurgery for the Mount Sinai Health System, systems director for neuroemergencies management and transfers or NEMAT program. And I'm the research director for neurocritical care and recovery. It's my honor and privilege to be here, Kelly. Thank you so much. And I'm really excited to talk about how to apply the ABCDF bundle into neuro ICU. I have worked only one travel contract in the neuro ICU. I did see exceptions in which sedation and, and mobility was essential. And, you know, a lot of the podcasts, we talk about COVID ICUs, MSICU kind of patients, but the A to F bundle is very flexible, very adaptable for patients in any specialty with any kind of exception. So as we get away with the, from this conveyor belt ICU care, how does the A to F bundle apply to the neuro ICU and why is it so important to implement? Kaylee, while a lot of the studies that informed the evidence-based practices for the A2F bundle may not have necessarily included patients with different kinds of acute brain injuries, like you said, this bundle is very adaptable. And perhaps in a neuro ICU setting, it may be even more important to humanize the ICU and to implement this ICU liberation bundle for various reasons, but the most important being there are so many of our patients who are not going to be able to speak for themselves, even as they're getting liberated from mechanical ventilation. They may have multifocal stroke or aphasia. Uh, there are so many structural reasons why they lose their agency and that feeling of being human. So whatever we can do to humanize the ICU, it is imperative for all the teams taking care of patients in a neuro ICU to do that. What do I mean by adapting the bundle to provide care for neuro ICU patients? So when we think about spontaneous awakening trials, spontaneous um, breathing trials, or choosing the right analgesic medications, or choosing the right sedative agents, titrating them appropriately, early mobilization, delirium screening and prevention, having loved ones or family at the bedside. I can't think of a single element of the bundle that is not applicable to a neuro ICU patient population. There are, you know, going a little bit into the reasons for why we sedate people in a neuro ICU, patients who have different kinds of severe acute brain injuries, why will they need to be sedated? There are those, those general critical care type reasons where you're going to treat their pain, they're going to need to be able to tolerate being on a mechanical ventilator, or they have um, different kinds of shock and uh, you're trying to reduce the metabolic demand of the body. 
so on and so forth. So there are various reasons why, just like you would in a general critical care population. Then there are these neurocritical care specific reasons you may need to sedate and use analgesia or analgesic drips in patients. For example, ICP crisis or patients who have status epilepticus, or patients who have ICP crisis and severe ARDS, or patients who have refractory ICP crisis even after having undergone, for example, decompressive surgery. So there are these neurocritical care specific reasons why you may need sedation and analgesia in addition to the general critical care reasons. But the bottom line is we're trying to, when the brain is injured, and while that primary neurological injury is recovering, we're trying to prevent secondary neurological injury. We're trying to quickly diagnose and treat secondary neurological injury as we're supporting our patients to recover from their primary neurological injury. And that cerebral edema, that ICP crisis or status epilepticus or ventriculitis, meningitis, things that are happening to them after their primary neurological injury may need some sedation and analgesia. But it's super, super important to recognize, yes, there will be times when we need to reduce the cerebral metabolic oxygen uh, consumption. There will be times where we, we need to modulate the cerebral blood flow. Uh, but at the same time, this, this central equation of CPP, cerebral perfusion pressure is equal to mean arterial pressure minus intracranial pressure, we're going to uphold that both as we're escalating somebody's sedation and analgesic drips, but also very intentionally thinking about when can we begin to de-escalate? When can we start waking our patients up every single day? Asking ourselves when we round on these patients, when is that day and time, the appropriate time to, to begin to de-escalate, to peel away the sedation so we can begin to see how our patient is recovering, what, what manifestations are we beginning to see from their underlying structural, um, structural brain injury? Because that's going to really begin to guide or unravel the mysteries of prognostication. So yes, we'll treat, but then we've got to start moving into this realm of prognostication as well. And one of the key things for prognostication is also, what is your patient's clinical examination? How much of the coma that your patient is suffering from is coming from the iatrogenic implementation of sedation and analgesia, and how much of this is coming from that underlying brain injury. So I know I said a lot of different things, but in my mind, you cannot bifurcate humanizing the ICU from providing care in the ICU. If it's care in the ICU, it has to involve humanization. Oh, absolutely. And when you have vulnerable brains that are already injured, it should be of utmost priority to prevent further injury to the brain, which sometimes does require some sedation. And I love that you talk about choice of analgesia, that that's when we, just because someone's on a ventilator doesn't mean they have to be blasted with midazolam. We have to think about what are we doing that will improve the harm that's already been done and not cause further harm, especially to the brain. And just because they're on a ventilator doesn't mean that they have to have sedation. And I love that approach of every rounds, every shift, every, hopefully throughout the shift, that question is always being asked, do they still have a clear mandatory indicator for sedation? And once they don't, then it's time to roll with the awakened breathing trials and trying to get it off. I, that was one of the things I was most impressed with, I guess, shocked by when I became a travel nurse is that I couldn't do a neuro exam on my patients. And that didn't seem to be concerning, 
even before I understood the harm of sedation, when I was just shocked by the mere sedation and immobility culture, the reason I wanted to get sedation off initially was because I wanted to do a neuro exam that was so normal to me to check to make sure my patient was following commands and oriented and, you know, all those things that you can do when a patient is awake, even on the ventilator, I couldn't do. And it was weird to me that the staff didn't think that that was concerning. They said, well, they're on a ventilator. And I, th I kept thinking, but then how do you do a neuro exam? Isn't that still important? Don't we still care? And when I'm hearing about COVID patients coming out with strokes that are not new, that probably happened days to weeks beforehand, it it hurts my heart. And I, I mean, how do you, in my mind, if a patient's awake and walking on a ventilator, you're going to know if they've had a stroke, you're going to know if they've had neurological changes. And how do you tell, because delirium has so many different presentations, it can be profoundly comatose or agitated. How do you know what's a brain injury from the first problem and what's delirium? You're asking some very, very important questions. So one central principle that guides us and something that we try to uphold every single time we're taking care of our patients is time is brain. There are lots of things that we need to recognize rapidly, both for this, this sort of rapid recognition of the primary neurological injury, knowing that our patients are going to be vulnerable to developing secondary neurological injury. How do we treat and prevent both the primary neurological injury and the secondary neurological injury? Like those are, those are very very fundamental principles of providing neurocritical care. Having said that, I think the, the challenges that come with performing a focused neurological examination in a patient who's sick for various reasons and needs to, needs to have sedative and analgesic drips or analgo sedative drips, I think recognizing that a patient needs it and what, what are the reasons and verbalizing those reasons very clearly this patient needs it because they have refractory ICP crisis. This patient needs to be uh, needs to be on a, a midazolam drip, a high dose midazolam drip because they have status epilepticus. So verbalizing the utility of your sedative and analgesic drips or analgo sedative drips, making it very clear, this is why we're using it. Once those reasons are gone or once, as soon as it is safe to start feeling things back, and I'll give you an example of, how we can start being very intentional about the use of these, these drips in our, in our patients who already have acute brain injuries. So verbalizing that reason, knowing what the trajectory of the primary and secondary neurological injury is going to be. Sometimes there are certain types of injuries where we know, okay, for example, a patient who has half their brain is, is suffering from a stroke and they've developed swelling. So what is called as a malignant MCA stroke. So, you know, when more than half that territory and the middle cerebral arteries involved, we know that these patients will swell. We also know that the most, the peak of the swelling will happen in the first 24 to 48 hours. Some patients will continue to swell up to seven days, but we know that decompressing them, the appropriately selected candidates is the right treatment for them. For younger patients, even after having their skull removed or half their skull removed, when they've undergone this decompression, they're still going to con continue to swell. So anticipating that they are going to continue to swell and what is it that I'm using to monitor that kind of swelling, whether it's invasive, non-invasive monitoring, verbalizing how frequently you're going to check all these different parameters, whether it's pupils, whether it's, you know, pupilometer, whether it's an 
EVD, ICP monitoring, optic nerve sheet diameter, ultrasound, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different things that you can do to use as surrogates for that raised intracranial pressure, use as surrogates for that worsening cerebral edema. That won't be the kind of patient you're going to then say, okay, now let me do a wake-up exam. You're not going to stop their sedation. You're not going to stop their analgesia because you know what the underlying trajectory is. However, you're using a lot of surrogates to monitor what is actually happening to this patient's brain right from the, the bedside assessments of their pupils uh, or ultrasound examination of their optic nerve sheet diameter or transcranial Doppler. Periodically, you will send them down for radiographic imaging, et cetera. So knowing that you're not able to wean somebody's sedation off, you're going to have that many more different ways of getting a window into what is going on in their brain, right? However, for our patients who are on ECMO or who are on LVADs and they're on ECMO and CVVH and a bunch of different devices and mechanical circulatory support, there are different reasons or they have refractory shock and now you can't stop their sedative or analgesic drips the least you can do is check their pupils, right? These are patients who, who can bleed into their brains when they're on anticoagulant drips, et cetera. So while there are patients in other ICUs or mixed medical surgical ICUs who may be at a risk of developing underlying neurological injury in whom you may not be able to do dedicated or focused neurological exams for various reasons, also being intentional and saying, these are the reasons why I can't wean their sedation and analgesia off. The least I'm going to ask our bedside nurses to do then is check the pupils. Look for any abnormal movements. Say somebody is not paralyzed, but they're sedated. And you begin to see diffuse segmental myoclonic jerks. So just observing your patient every single time you go in, you know, letting them know that you're there, no matter what their depth of sedation, analgesia, their paralytics, just letting them know that you're there, that you're going to be assessing specific things it also reminds you that there is a human being behind that patient when you do that. So just addressing them by their name, letting them know what you're going to do. And even if you can't peel off sedation for doing that, the hallmark of neuro ICU tends to be this Q1 hour neuro check, right? So in those patients in whom we can't uh, wean their drips off, at least having other ways of monitoring. And the least, if you can't do anything else, at least check their pupils. Oh, so many good points. When you talk about the myoclonal jerks, I think in other specialties, sometimes if you see any movement, it just means you turn up sedation. We're so afraid of any kind of movement rather than evaluating what is that movement about? Or a seizure, right? Or a new onset seizure. <laughs> so instead of just ramping up your sedation, observing that movement and trying to make sense. And if, you, if you've seen abnormal movements on one side of the body or the other, or generalized abnormal movements, also knowing who, who are you supposed to ask for help at your hospital? Is it the you know, neurology consult team or do you call neurocritical care? Who do you call for help? Who can also lay eyes? Sometimes you know, we don't, for particularly for, for seizures or for abnormal movements, for the non-expert or somebody who, is, who hasn't seen these kinds of movements before, they may not be able to describe it when you have an expert at the bedside. So then your expert may not be able to diagnose what that problem was. So sometimes, you know, even making a video, a brief video of the movement that you've seen and knowing that this was recorded on this much sedation. So despite this much sedation, despite this much, you know, fentanyl or whatever analgesic, despite that, we're seeing these movements. 
what could this be? Does this look like a seizure or is this a movement disorder or not? So I think being uh, astute, it doesn't take that long. Every time you walk in to titrate your drips, if you, if you said hello to your patient, address them by their first name and just observe what is happening to them before you begin to titrate your drips, for example. And I think sometimes we misinterpret anxiety or agitation mm -hmm. um, as pain, or we just, we get so worried about movements because we don't want them to be agitated. But when you cause delirium, you're at high risk of having agitation. And often that's from the, the sedatives and your patients, when they you know probably needed sedatives at some point, you're peeling it back. Now you have this acute agitation and, and you know, historically we've been saying you can give these medications for agitation, but the irony is it's not going to really fix the agitation because it's causing the agitation. So how do you go through that process of working through delirium as well as primary brain injury um, without causing more brain injury with more station, but still having real agitation and, and likely in patients that you're not going to be able to quickly reorient. Mm -hmm. And how do you initiate early mobility during all of that? How do you move forward? So first let's talk a little bit about delirium. And there were several societies who put together a consensus, you know, statement about delirium and thinking about, you know, acute, thinking of delirium as acute brain failure. When we talk about organ failure in patients who don't have, you know, underlying organ injury, we talk, Kaylee, you and I were chatting briefly about, you know, acute renal failure or acute liver failure. So delirium is akin to acute brain failure. Now, if we think about acute brain failure in those patients who don't have underlying structural brain injury, so they came in with seemingly normal brains, they were, they did not have any problems with their brains, but just as their underlying disease process, whether it's uh, sepsis, whether it's ARDS, just as that underlying uh, disease process is affecting different organs in their body, the brain is perhaps one of the most vulnerable organs in the body when it comes to trying to maintain perfusion. We don't have good tools to measure that kind of brain injury on structural imaging. And you know, a lot of functional imaging hasn't made it from the realm of research into our bedside care. And oftentimes these are not the patients who are stable enough to even move back and forth for different kinds of you know, neuroimaging. But when great, you, like delirium came up in the lab results every morning. Yeah, if then we would care, right? Marker, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Then there would be no question, right? Yeah. Why is this person person not behaving like uh, they would? Well, we, we think about these fluctuations in attention and this confusion and agitation. And then the more difficult thing to diagnose is hypoactive delirium. It's so much harder because we're relying on clinical assessments to give us the answer. While there are well-validated scales in patients without structural brain injury, when you have a patient with underlying structural brain injury, so it's almost as if you're adding insult to injury. So there's already structural brain injury. Their brains are already vulnerable. Then everything else that we do to them in an ICU setting, what is happening to their brains when we're doing all of those, those other things, whether it's, whether it's you know, sedative drips or it's immobilization or the lack of family visitation or not being able to comprehend what is actually happening to them because of their underlying structural brain injury. So that just that fear of loss of identity, that fear of losing their lives, and they're not able to verbalize it because they have a breathing tube down their throats. Like there's, there's so much to unpack there. 
So knowing my approach to agitation is very simple. And I teach this on my rounds always. Agitation is a symptom of something else. Like you have to get to the bottom of why is this person agitated? And just saying, oh, it's just ICU delirium. No, ICU delirium is also, it's this, you know, it is the signature of a lot of other things that are happening either physiologically to this patient or uh, as a consequence of the medications that we're using or just as a consequence of the, of the care that we're trying to provide to support them as they're recovering from their primary, from, from the primary reason that they came to the ICU, right? So we have to, one is, okay, should you then do some symptomatic management of the agitation to ensure that your patient is safe enough so you can buy some time to find that underlying reason for why they're agitated? I think that that is appropriate, but at the same time, not uh, and I and I'll say this on rounds. You know, there are, there are occasions when when people were yeah, you know, the person was agitated, so we put the patient on a presidex strip. Yeah, then what? Like, did you try to <laughs> did you try to yes. figure out figure out why is this person? One of my out? favorite case studies is someone that we were. They came out from an outside facility. They were on midazolam. They came out as you would expect, agitated. She bit through her, her endotracheal tube. She was on high ventilator settings. We replaced the tube. But, and we, we did, we started propofol and fentanyl and Presidex and cause we wanted to bridge to Presidex, but we used that time and it was like only an hour or two to get her down to a rest of one or zero, get her only on the Presidex, then get her walking and get her moving with family and connecting. And we use that to bridge to that. You can't walk someone without, when they're on a rest of three or four. But we didn't just say that was a failed sedation vacation. Oh, that was agitation. Therefore, she needs sedation. We panicked and we said, she seems to have acute brain failure. We need to implement these tools and we're, Prestex is going to enable that. And shortly after we took her off of Prestex, mm-hmm. but we don't have that approach. But if we saw like oliguria, we wouldn't say, oh no, it's just from the acute renal failure. It's okay. We just accept it. No, we're, we're going to get to the bottom of it. We're going yeah. to work it up. We're going to also look at every single thing that is worsening that, you know, that acute renal failure. So why are we not approaching acute brain failure the same way? I'm sure, I'm sure that if, if we look at, you know, preventing itrogenic harm and knowing, yes, a lot of these things are needed, but they're needed that whole escalation and de-escalation. So I think this analogy with how septic shock should be managed and fluids, right? Fluids are also very controversial. Like how much should you give? How quickly should you give? And when do you begin to de-escalate? But thinking about supporting every, every organ in the body in a manner that is going to be cohesive. There are going to be different needs, but can we minimize itrogeny? Can we escalate, optimize, stabilize, and then begin de-escalation? One of my friends, Dr. Manu Malbrain, talks about this ROSE concept for, uh, he's published quite a bit for ROSE concept for, you know, septic shock and fluid management, et cetera. And I think that concept probably applies to how we take care of, you know, different, different kinds of injuries. You, res- you know, you resuscitate, you optimize, stabilize, and then remember to de-escalate. Like that's important. Yes. And we've got to do the same. Like if you thought about sedation, analgesia, sure your patient is having ICP crisis or going back to that patient who's a young patient in his 50s, has this middle cerebral artery stroke. It was a malignant cerebral stroke and they, they needed decompressive hemicrany. 
despite the decompression, now they're continuing to swell, continuing to swell. And you know what that anticipated trajectory is. So yes, I'll escalate along that ICP management ladder. I'm going to escalate and maybe even, even paralyze this patient. But then I'll verbalize to my team, if this patient goes without an ICP crisis for 24 to 48 hours, we, we're going to need to start peeling some of those things back. And then what are we going to start with? So of course, in that situation, sedation is not going to be the first thing that I'll peel. Paralytics may be the first thing that I'm going to peel off and then see how this person uh, is going to tolerate, tolerate that. So knowing how we do these different things and, and verbalizing it, being intentional, using evidence-based practices where it's available. And in the absence of, of evidence, at least having a consistent practice and measuring the consistency in our practice, educating our frontline teams that these are all the things that we're going to need to do and how are we going to adapt the A to F bundle. So for us, we've also implemented several elements of the A to F bundle into our respiratory recovery pathway at Mount Sinai. And it's built in into our electronic health uh, record, EPIC. And we've got these ICU daily goal sheets and the goal sheets need to be completed on rounds. And while they, they include, you know, what are the top five things we're going to do for this patient? They also have, okay, so what are we going to do about the sedation? What are we going to do about the analgesia? What scale are we using? So yes, we're using the RAS, we're using the CPOT, et cetera, et cetera. For early mobilization, the, for knowing how much we can ambulate our patients, or can we start with sitting them up in bed so that they're not, you know, losing their trunkal stability and not getting deconditioned, et cetera. Till we, till we did not start using this, this whole respiratory recovery pathway is then ordered on every patient who goes on mechanical ventilation. And because it's all built in, now it's essentially, it's a shared document between the, the medical team and the nursing team. So the medical team has to fill out what is the level of mobility. So on rounds, we'll discuss it with our nurses. What do you think this person can do? And then we have to fill it into our, ICU goal sheet and it gets populated on the nursing side. And when they finish their charting, only then that loop gets closed. Otherwise it doesn't get closed. And you can visualize, you know, how much somebody's, somebody has progressed and are they meeting their goal or not? So those sort of visual cues and reminding, reminding the frontline teams about why this is so important. One of my neurosurgery friends, Dr. Christopher Kellner says, you know, any, more than anything I can do as a surgeon, it's the presence of family at the bedside that makes a difference. And paraphrasing that, the therapeutic effect of having family and loved ones at the bedside is much more than anything that we can do as we're providing care for our critically ill patients. And to prevent the consequences of our, of our treatments and of our support in the ICU, we know there are these unintended consequences, this post-intensive care syndrome. And this whole um, battery of problems that our patients and families suffer from as part of ICU survivorship. So one of the keys to preventing PICS is the implementation of the A to F bundle. So now that we know it, we know this works. We know that ICU survivorship is very, very hard. And there is this new state of normal that we can prepare our patients and families for. Let's prepare everybody for success. So the least we can do is adapt and adopt the A2F bundle and neuro ICUs are no exception in my mind.
Oh, and I love that the ADEF bundle isn't just in your EHR. It's in your culture. It's in your rounds. It's in your process of care. Because I think probably everywhere now has a CAM score, a RAS score, CPOT requirement in the charting system for nurses. But there's not always that leadership. There's not always that interdisciplinary collaboration and communication about here's why we have sedation. That alone, I think, is powerful. I think we just automatically have married mechanical ventilation and sedation, and there are no questions asked. There's no identification of exact indicator. It's just automatic. And that's what I experienced as a travel nurse. I would say, well, why are they sedated? And they say, because they're intubated. Like, like it was a dud, it was assumed. And that wasn't my perception, but breaking through that barrier to say they are on a sedative because of this exact indicator that's going to be temporary. We're going to reassess every shift, every um, rounds, and we're going to talk about it. That kind of leadership and education has to be so powerful in guiding treatment. Otherwise, um, why would we change anything when it's convenient to have people comatose and for that moment? And then to have everyone involved in that assessment that this isn't a dictatorship. Everyone is weighing in. The nurses at the bedside who are the eyes and ears of everything are contributing to understanding the patient's status and needs and that you talk about what you're working towards. I think that is so powerful. And if every IC specialty did that, then we could really more appropriately triage the utilization of sedatives in the ICU and actually implement and have a culture of the A to F bundle. And then when you have patients that are agitated, how do you keep them safe when, you know, they may have a hemicrani and they have, you know, these safety risks and you can't have them thrashing. How do you work through that? And like, how does physical and occupational therapy play into that? So it really takes a village in all aspects of care. And, um, Katie, like you mentioned, that multidisciplinary aspect, that collaborative care, coming up with a plan and reassessing it and reevaluating. So at every step of the way, if if we're finding that our patient is agitated despite having an adequate plan in place or something changed during the course of the day. So like we were discussing earlier in the conversation, where is that agitation coming from? And yes, we can do symptomatic treatment, but we've got to get to the bottom of why this is happening. See, I'll also share with our teams that this this delirium is always going to be a diagnosis of exclusion. There are certain medications that may increase the risk of our patients getting more agitated. For example, levetiracetam. Levetiracetam is is used, it's a very good anti-epileptic medication, but in some of our older patients, it may just cause them to become more agitated. So yes, they're already at risk of developing ICU delirium. And then you add a primary neurological injury, whether it's a stroke or brain bleed, whatever it is, you have that. And then you're adding, for example, Keppra as a uh, you know, seizure prophylaxis. So maybe it's not the right choice in a patient who, who is demonstrating that they're not tolerating it. So slowly peeling things back that we have already done to, to our patients rather than trying to add another medication to treat the side effect of a medication that you started on the patient, right? So I think that is, uh, that's a common approach that I'll use. I'll look at all the different medications. Some of our brain tumor patients will be on very high dose steroids. They need it. They need it for their vasogenic cerebral edema. However, can we start doing a faster taper? 
So that'd be another, another kind of approach, or there are some kinds of injuries that are going to predispose patients to more behavioral reasons for, for having agitation, like bifrontal injury, people who have a lot of edema in their, in, in both the frontal lobes, because they had a big, you know, parasagittal meningioma or the like. So we know that those patients will have a higher structural reason for being agitated. So can we do some symptom management around the same time as they are emerging from their uh, anesthesia or when they're coming out of the operating room, talking to the surgical teams and coming up with a plan for how are we going to manage their steroids because we know they're going to get agitated. Or this is how they presented the last time they underwent their, their surgery and now they, they, they're undergoing a resection of that recurrent tumor. So I think getting to know the patient's history preparing them for success. If you already knew that somebody had agitation after they emerged from anesthesia for, for whatever reasons, whether they had structural injury or not, then what is your symptom management plan going to be? And making sure that all the different teams that are going to be managing this patient during different phases of care, from the OR to the ICU, from, or from the OR to the PACU, from the PACU to the ICU, just making sure everybody's on the same page. In the ICU setting, when we round with our nurses at the bedside, we'll ask them, you know, do you, what is your assessment of their agitation? Is it worse? Symptomatically, is it worse as compared to yesterday? We've looked for all of these possible reversible causes. What else can we do? Then I will temporarily use, you know, antipsychotic medications like Seroquel. I'm using the words temporarily because it's very, very important to not continue this medication at the time when these patients leave the ICU, right? I also, I'm also very grateful to our teams that we work with in our critical care recovery clinic. And we'll find, you know, some of these patients come back on, on Seroquel and it's not okay. So we, we have to be very thoughtful. Just as we start a therapy, when are we going to stop it? What are the reasons why we're doing it? So I, I may use that. I may use Seroquel or Zyprexa for symptom, symptom management. Rarely we'll, we'll end up using Haldol if a patient is not allowing for, doesn't have an, you know, doesn't have enteral access or is too agitated to swallow safely, or they have dysphagia and they're not able to swallow and they don't have enteral access. So we may end up using, you know, sublingual or IM Zyprexa. Presidex, we do end up using Presidex drips, again, being very thoughtful about, okay, it is going to be titrated to a RAS of zero to negative one. And when do we think we're going to be able to peel off this Presidex? Do we need to add, for example, Seroquel to be able to stop the, the Presidex drip and see how this patient's doing? Because it also limits their ability to participate in physical therapy, occupational therapy, if they're going to be on drips and over sedated. So we don't, we want to break that vicious cycle Another thing that the bedside nurses will always help us in assessing is, do they need a one-to-one -to, -one to keep them safe? Do they need somebody present in the room? Pre-COVID, it was very easy to say, okay, you know, we're going to get a one-to-one -one and this person can stay at this, this patient's bedside. We designed a new ICU in 2019, a new neuro ICU in 2019. And we had this family zone, patient zone, nursing zone. And the idea was that a loved one could stay overnight in the patient's room. We also invite 
loved ones to join us or the, the, the surrogate or the person who is responsible for decision-making or their healthcare proxy, we'll invite them to join us on rounds so they can hear and help us prepare a plan. You know, you'll sometimes hear these little tidbits from families, you know, this person likes to be called this. So then we'll write it on the board. You know, we have these boards in, in all the IC rooms. We'll write, oh, this person likes to be called this. When you call them this, you know, they, they will respond better or they like this kind of music and we'll play that kind of music for the patients, you know. So I, I found it very challenging during COVID when we had limitations on family visitation because I really missed having that partner in, in providing care. Part of the team was cut out. Oh my God. And they, were, <laughs> they are the experts in their loved one. We may try to be the experts in medicine, but they are the experts in this person. So we take that and what do they like to be called? What is their favorite? You know, what this very interesting story. I should share this with you. So we had this patient who came in with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. She happened to be, she happened to be a nurse and, you know, nurse who used to work night shift. And we had no idea that she is sleeping a lot during the day and staying up like, oh yeah, she's developed ICU delirium. We got to do something about it. Then her, her family shared with us, yeah, you know, she's used to sleeping eight hours during the day. Like that's what she does. This is her normal routine. Yeah. <laughs> that's who she is. Don't, don't treat it with medications. <laughs> yes. I, I've heard from a lot of podcast listeners that they have really noticed that sedation use has drastically increased when family's not there. Yes. Because they're not there for reorientation, for reassuring, no matter, and having that familiar voice tell you it's going to be okay, you're getting all the care you need, that goes a long way in mitigating some of that fear, which may be contributing to, to that agitation. And then we're recognizing, we sometimes misinterpret that fear as delirium because they can't verbalize that they're just scared. Or pain, so we need to go up in the narcotics, or you know, pain, the pain, (laughs) and just even the very concept of a deep, thorough assessment, evaluating all the contributing factors, just getting down to the root of why they're having this symptom instead of masking it. That can be universally applied in any ICU specialty and can drastically change outcomes because we are training our team whether outright or subconsciously or culturally to just turn up sedation instead of asking why are they having symptoms? Why are they agitated? And and then we don't educate us to the effects of our medications that we give. So we give more of the thing that's causing the problem often, um, or we're missing addressing the true cause of the problem. And so we're never really fixing anything. And we're causing this, as you say, vicious cycle. We just walk them into this delirium ride and we say, sorry, welcome to the ICU, you're on. This is is the way it's going to be. And how does this impact the team's morale? Do you feel when you have this kind of focus? Because the perception is that the ADF bundle is more laborious, that it right now in our staffing crisis, we don't have the manpower, we don't have the time, we don't have the energy to implement these interventions. How do you feel like this impacts workload and staff morale? The why behind the things that we're doing and verbalizing those whys are so important. And we don't, we don't necessarily, we don't necessarily educate our teams at, you know, on the on the front lines, particularly our nursing staff or our APPs and trainees. 
we're not necessarily being intentional about teaching them about the why and also challenging you know one of the things that i one of the first things that i learned at med school was you're not here to worship what is known but to question it and i am so glad that i learned that so early on i'm so so grateful to all of my mentors who who have you know pushed me to to think about the why and making sure that our frontline team so even when we were rolling this out you're absolutely right that whole documentation burden and the the titration and when when joint commission is coming by you know why, why are you not titrating titrating your drips or pressers you know as rapidly as you're actually escalating somebody's care some of those things need to be reengineered because we are taking away from the mission of providing care when we create onerous when we tie that uh, tie that very very important care to onerous documentation because then it then it becomes burdensome when it actually should be a source of joy because you are you are not only providing care for your patient you're providing care for the whole person when you implement for example the icu liberation bundle so making sure that we create avenues for dialogue and we create avenues very intentionally for why we are going to be doing things a certain way and are there are there opportunities for us to improve the implementation so there is nothing wrong with with this evidence based practice but the implementation may need a little bit of reengineering may need a little bit of optimization so i i think it's important to bifurcate the 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 science the education the implementation at the bedside and that documentation piece because if we don't do that we are then setting our teams up for failure so this mantra set everybody up for success like i say this every single day including including our patients our families ourselves our teams like if we don't do this then we are we're doing a disservice we're doing a disservice to to our nursing staff and then propagating that idea that you know we just this is just for the for the sake of documentation then it it becomes it's trivialization of something that is so meaningful and so important to do so how do we simplify it so making sure that our electronic health records become smarter smarter at capturing some of this information that the documentation doesn't become onerous that you have for example you know a nice flow that is built into your electronic health record that that flows directly for example into your nurses care plan so they don't have to type separately oh i titrated this and i titrated that you are already documenting it in one part of the ehr so let's not have them documented multiple times in multiple places so there are easy fixes i'm just giving a a small example but there are so many ways in which we can improve the implementation of a bundle that already works the hard work of proving whether it works has already been done by by giants like you know west ely and team like let's just let's just make sure that we can implement it implement it in a manner that our frontline teams don't find burdensome but it becomes a natural part of their care yes i i feel like some of our implementation has lacked the why and therefore it's become very burdensome we automatically start sedation on everyone because they're intubated and we create delirium and then we leave it to the nurses to unmask the delirium and then we don't explain to them why we're working on 
moving that direction. They don't understand. And nurses are extremely smart. And so I find it a little bit insulting to not provide that education and allow them tools for critical thinking that we just bark orders or just put things into the charting system and demand that they feign an awakened breathing trial. But we're not actually truly doing it. And they don't get to actually experience the benefit of having patients be free of delirium, having the human connection, having them get better and get off the ventilator and walk out the doors. We're depriving our teams of that kind of joy because we've missed, as you say, the why. And so I appreciate what your team's doing and, and having that kind of collaboration and that constant communication about the why so that everyone can be an active participant and understand the big picture, because that's why we got into this. We wanted to alleviate human suffering and save lives. And that is facilitated by the ADA F bundle. But until we understand that, then it just seems like another laborious thing to do. Absolutely right. And that team approach in how we provide care every single day, that should flow into our culture and our culture should flow into how we provide care. So I think that sort of interconnectedness, we can't, when we talk about burnout in medicine and particularly burnout in the ICUs and so many of our nurses and watching some of our, you know, really amazing, excellent nurses experience that, that a deprivation of joy and that, that sense of burnout and not having meaning in what they're doing. This is an avenue to give them back that sense of control in a patient's journey, because that's why we all decided to, you know, like you said, take this on to, to alleviate human suffering and all this other stuff, whether it's documentation, whether it's billing, whether it's, it's, you know, work RVUs, like it's, it's insane that those are the kinds of things that are becoming so prominent that we're letting those things rob us of the reasons why we chose to do this in the first place. So while those things, whether it's documentation, whether it's billing, work RVUs, et cetera, Yes, they're, they're, they're important at some level, but these should not become the be all and the end all. And who can prevent that from happening is us. Like we've got to be very clear that we're not going to let these things rob us of the joy of providing excellent care for our patients and making sure that we, we have the backing and support of leadership teams at our respective hospitals. So when all the hospitals, you know, I know there's, there's been a whole movement of wellness. And while this was not the, the theme of our, you know, of our podcast today, I, I should share that it, we shouldn't just be paying lip service to wellness. The implementation of care, like the ICU liberation bundle, the A to F bundle, that when we provide excellent care for our patients, that is the number one antidote to burnout. So let's do everything that we can right from the knowledge to that knowledge translation, implementation of high quality evidence-based practices, providing people with the right knowledge, the time space, the resources, so they can, they can do right. And when, when we help our teams do right, that prevents burnout. Oh, that's profound. I am a deep believer of when it's right, it feels right. And that brings peace and joy and all these good things, good feelings. And that's partially why there's so much um, turmoil going on because we're not doing a lot of the right things and we don't have that inner peace. But as we provide that human care that we've entered the field for, we can have that reciprocated joy and peace 
and it will feel right and keep us at the bedside and, and probably help resolve a lot of the other problems as we have more motivation and energy to do so. But when we provide poor care, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. Thank you so much for everything you've contributed for this incredible perspective and these tools for critical thinking that I think apply to anyone at the bedside in the ICU. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. And I invite everyone to follow her on Twitter. She's a powerful advocate for patient care and an obviously an A to F expert. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Katie. Much appreciated. To schedule a consultation and connect on social media, as well as find supportive resources, including case studies, ebook, episode transcripts, and citations to research, please visit the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com.